Well, you should have a set of notes, and let me just preface this uh, this morning. Again, this is a little unusual, so if you've just joined us, uh, normally we're doing an in-depth Bible study, and we're looking this summer, as we said, at some theological topics. The first of these is going to be on the Bible. Let me just preface what we're going to look at. For some, questioning the authenticity or errancy of the text is not a, a matter you've ever dealt with. It is not an issue. You've accepted it as God's word, and you're fine with that. I've got another group over here, though, that's saying, no, I've, I've really wrestled with these issues for a long time. Or I have a, a son or a daughter uh, that are off to college, and they're now really doubting the uh, accuracy of the text, or why only 66 books. So this morning, I'm going to try to hit the middle ground, uh, make this practical, but we are going to deal with some in-depth issues. Uh, you may want to sleep. <laughs> you, you, you may say, hey, we need to dig deeper. And, and we could on various topics. We, we could spend all five sessions just dealing with this issue. So forgive me if it's a little cursory for some. For others, forgive me if I'm throwing out 50-cent words and really don't care too much about that. I'm hoping that at least it'll expose you to the issues at hand and challenge you to, to maybe dig deeper on your own. There is, at the end of the notes, a further reading. And I've listed three books which I have found helpful on this topic one of the authors, Daniel Wallace, is who we had come speak to our group. If you remember, some of you attended that October event. By the way, we have um, Dr. Chisholm from Dallas Seminary, who will be our keynote speaker for October, and we'll share more on that. I I'm really excited. Uh, he's a who's who in Old Testament studies and a very good communicator. But um, Wallace, his work, but... Um, I've given you two others that you can look at as well. So uh, what I've done, I've selected five, what I think are five typical questions that arise when it comes to the Bible, and we're going to explore those. We won't look at every point in the notes that you have them before you, but uh, I want to highlight a few things as we go along. Obviously, if you have questions, stop me, and we will certainly address those, all right? So that's the plan of attack. Let's see how we succeed. The first of the questions that's often raised, and, and I've given you the argument that many will give under the, the uh, umbrella of the question, aren't the copies of the Bible hopelessly corrupt? After all, the argument is, you know, you've, you've ever played that phone game when you're a kid? You, you tell somebody one thing and then they pass it along and by the time it's shared, you know, it's a whole different story. And so the argument is, you've got a copy of a I mean, we have no original, right? Number one, people say, hey, we have no original manuscript. I can't go to a museum in Germany and, or wherever and see Romans by Paul. You're not going to find it. It's, not, it's non-existent. There are no originals. And so we have copies of copies, and as a result, there's heirs. And folks like Bart Ehrman, who teach at Duke, will say, hey, here you are. There's 400 thousand variants just in the Greek New Testament. A variant is a, a different reading, by the way. Uh, and let me give you an example. A variant is a different reading uh, among at least two manuscripts. So for instance, in 2 Peter 1.1, there are two, two different readings among the manuscripts, the copies of the New Testament. One has the righteousness of our God, the other has the righteousness of our Lord. And Ehrman and others are saying there are over 400,000 variants. 
So how can you possibly think that we don't have a corrupt version today of the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew uh, scriptures? All right. Well, Mr. Bart Ehrman and others, we have a response to that. And I want to highlight a few of these as we look at this. And this is in your notes. The first of these is... Uh, well, first of all, we could debate the 400,000 variants. Some will say there's 200,000. Regardless, it's, it, it's a vast number. But what Bart Ehrman does not tell us is that there's only about, uh, as you see there in the notes, we have over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone in Greek and Latin, etc. And so, yeah, you've got a lot of variants. We have a whole lot of manuscripts. And in fact... As you see there in your notes, majority of these variants are around particular passages of text in the New Testament. For instance, the end of Mark, there are a whole host of uh, variants there because many manuscripts do not contain verses 9 to the end of the chapter. And so, number one, that's a little misleading to say there's 400,000. Secondly, as I highlight there in your notes... There are no major uh, variants that affect major doctrine. Yes, there are some variants that affect doctrine. Uh, there's some variants that would question the deity of Christ, but it's not a major variant. And me major meaning it's a significant one. It's well attested. There are some well attested variants that do not affect major doctrine. And so, we, we have to understand, in fact, I mentioned there in your notes, less than 3% of all these variants are significant enough to be presented in one of the two standard critical editions of the Greek New Testament. If you pick up the UBS, it has less than 2,000 variants in its textual apparatus down at the bottom. So in other words, we don't have a whole host of disturbing variances. Many of the variances that we have are a misspelling or the scribe clearly skipped a word when he was copying the manuscript. So this idea that there's 400,000 and this has been the phone game and it's been polluted over time, that's not quite true. But the real kicker is this, and I'm going to focus here on the New Testament for a minute. The New Testament has more witnesses that means copies and earlier older copies than any other ancient writing so significant is this that one scholar wallace says it's an embarrassing wealth of riches what does he mean by that if you turn to page two i give you a chart this is just an example tacitus for instance, let's look at Tacitus. He's an, a writer, ancient historian, and in the first going into the second century, right? In the 56 to 120 AD. The oldest copy we have of Tacitus is from the ninth century. And how many copies do we have of Tacitus? Three. Now look at the New Testament. We have one manuscript, P52, is dated at 110. It's a copy of John. When was John written? Probably in the 80s. So we're talking less than 30 years from when it was originally written. There is no ancient manuscript that can boast of the quality so close to when it was written. And notice we have nearly 6,000 Greek manuscripts. And that doesn't include Latin. That does not include church fathers that, that quote scripture in the first three centuries. Uh, there's no one that can boast of this. 
No ancient writing can boast of this. What does that tell us? Yeah, you, we have copies of copies of copies, but scholars have come along and they've looked at all these and said, listen, we can get down to what is originally written. 90, 90, Wallace would argue probably 90, high 90% of what we have in the Greek New Testament today was what was originally written in the New Testament in the first century. That's very significant. There's, again, no ancient writing that can boast of this. So, yeah, you can talk about all these variants. That shouldn't trouble us when we have such a, a witness, uh, such a uh, prolifera uh, of resources here, of copies or witnesses of the text. Let me give you one more, uh, and then we'll open this up for questions on, the, on this first um, issue that's raised with the te text of Scripture. And the, it's the bullet point on the first page, the last one. Blomberg states, the original copy of a biblical book would most likely have been used to make countless new copies over a period of several centuries. In other words, it was, if you have a copy that's used 100, 200 years, and so we can compare notes, and we know that in what's called textual criticism, it's a science of studying the text, I don't want to go too deep, but let me give you an example with the Old Testament. Prior to 1947, the oldest Old Testament text we had was dated around 850 A.D. What happened in 1947? Thank you. The Dead Sea Scrolls. A Bedouin boy threw a rock in a cave looking for his goat, heard a crash. The next thing you know, we have now 12 caves with nearly 900 manuscripts, and what we found with the Dead Sea Scrolls, many of these were biblical texts dated 200 B.C. to A.D. 100. What's that? What do we see? We're going back a thousand years. And when we compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with the texts we have in the 850 A.D., there's very little variance. So what it tells us is these copies were being used and used, and uh, not to mention a great high reverence for the text. Even today, if a, if a Jewish scribe makes a mistake uh, in, in copying a text, the whole manuscript's thrown out. So there's, um, we, we can't underestimate this. Uh, I, you know, people play this, this, this phone game does not work when it comes to copying the scripture. And this is a testimony to that. Questions on this? This is significant. Uh, Bart Ehrman really tries to run with this. If you pick up U.S. News and World Report at Christmas time or at, at Easter, he's often cited. He's a leading voice. Go to Barnes & Noble. Is there a Barnes & Noble anymore? I don't know. Uh, Books a Million. If you go to the Jesus or New Testament section or religious section and you look up books on Jesus, Bart Ehrman's the leading author. He's very prominent. <clears throat> if, I will make a Yeah, and, and for, to answer the first question, are the copies of the Bible hopelessly corrupt? No, they're not. Not at all. And uh, folks like Dan Wallace are spending, uh, you know, he's with the center that studied the New Testament manuscripts, um, can testify, listen, there is no major variant that affects major doctrine. Very significant. Even my advisor in Aberdeen, who is agnostic at best, would tell you, yeah, what's in the New Testament? She's not going to debate. Now, she'll debate that John didn't know what he was writing about, but she won't debate 
yeah, John did write this. We're, we're fairly certain based upon the quality and quantity of the manuscripts. Well, let me give you another question. Some of you are saying, yeah, I knew all that. Thank you. Let me give you another. <clears throat> Isn't the Bible inspired only when it's responded to by faith on part of the reader? This is... Uh, uh, this has been popular since the 70s, kind of a reader's response. <clears throat> it's inspiring like Reader's Digest, that is the Bible, but it's uh, not certainly God's Word. It contains elements of God's Word, but it can't be God's Word. That's the argument that's given. There's two problems with this. Number one, it's very subjective in its argumentation. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. These are texts we're very familiar with. And I would challenge you to commit these to memory. Uh, <clears throat> why? Because as you dialogue with individuals who want to undermine the text, these are or question the, the authenticity of the text, these are some passages you, you could easily go to. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says, Every scripture, and it's clear in the Greek, it's, every element of it, is inspired by God. There's the word. Literally, uh, Paul coins a new term. It's, it's, it means God-breathed. It's overseen by God. Not dictated, but it's God-breathed. It's overseen by God and useful for teaching, and, and you can see, so that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped. And so <clears throat> the Scriptures itself claims to be the Word of God, that it's inspired. I give you a quote there by Henry, he states, inspiration is that supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, whereby the sacred writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, being restrained from error and guided in the choice of words they used, consistently with their disparate personalities and stylistic peculiarities. If you compare the Gospels, for instance, you see the uniqueness of the human author, but God's still overseeing that, right? Uh, it's, it's, there's only one gospel writer that mentions the withered hand as his right hand, Dr. Luke. Only one of the gospel writers refers to coins in a very specific manner using technical terms, Matthew, the tax collector. And yet, the Holy Spirit is overseeing all of that in, in their writings as stated in 2 Timothy. Also, I would argue, the Holy Spirit confirms the scriptures to us and we have fulfilled prophecy. Micah 5.2 is a little town in Bethlehem. 700 years later or so, it's literally fulfilled, right? 2 Peter 1. Turn to, turn to this text. <clears throat> I had a, an individual write to me from our Sunday school class recently. said she had been reading that John, when he wrote the book of Revelation was probably sedated, taking uh, um, psychedelic drugs or whatever, and cited the oracle at Delphi and how the cave there was the certain fumes and gases and, and, and so forth, so the cave at Patmos. And I said, well, I've been to both, and I don't know of any geological confirmation of what you're saying. But then I cited this text in 2 Peter 1, tells us they weren't using mushrooms it says in fact it says in verse 20 above all you do well if you recognize this no prophecy of scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination that's that's the mormon church right that's not what we're dealing with here 
For no prophecy was ever born of human impulse, rather men carried along. Term is used of a cell, but where the wind carries by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And, and so God himself is overseeing this. There is a mystery. There is a tension there, isn't there? You've got the human author uh, overseen by the Lord. But nonetheless, it's God who is breathing this. And so the Bible doesn't contain elements that are in the, the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. And it's to be understood and responded accordingly. Right? So number two, the question there I see problems with. Uh, and that one is a very popular one, especially in a postmodern world where uh, whatever is right is in your own eyes. Right? Uh, we are re rewriting the Constitution. Uh, we see uh, individuals want to rewrite the text as well. Let me give you a third question that is raised. Wasn't the selection of the books for the canon just political? And what is a canon? Canon means read. It's a set of books that govern a group of people. Our canon is the 66 books, Old and New Testament. And this argument is that in the 4th century, the early church, a group within the church, uh, declared what was orthodox and they eliminated any book they didn't want and so they won the day well problem with that is first of all yes it was in the fourth century that the early church determined what or recognized let me rephrase that which book should be included in the canon all right you say wow that's really late that's because books that were heretical started appearing in the second and third century and the early church had councils that met and said, you know what, we need to determine what should be included in the canon. And so canon is developed, and this is on page three of your notes, that first paragraph, canonicity is the human recognition that certain books are indeed the scriptures that God inspired. In other words, the church never determined the canon. That was determined by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're going to disagree a bit with what I'm saying because you're going to say church tradition and the Holy Spirit determines the canon. And I would disagree. I would argue inspiration is the only criteria, a term we just defined. Let me give you a couple things here to look at. In fact, um, <clears throat> This verse that's on the top of page 3, and we're already in Second Peter, so just turn there. Second Peter 3, let me highlight something to you. It says, and Peter writes and says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him. Speaking of these things, note the last phrase, in all his letters. That's very significant. Peter and Paul did not really hang out together. Paul is administering in modern Turkey and over into Greece. How does Peter know of these letters? Which it tells us that very early on, the church is collecting letters. We know that. Paul, when he writes to the church at Colossae, at the end of the letter, he says, when you're done, send this over to Laodicea and make sure you see the letter I wrote to them. So you can imagine, right? If you got a group over here and they've got a letter from Paul, you'd want a copy, wouldn't you? I would. Hey, we got a letter too. We'll share it with you. Let's see what you got. And, and so we, we see this very early on. 
This is before the 60s, we see a gathering of the letters uh, of Paul, and I would other argue other writings. So this idea that it comes later, and that there was a group political jockeying for what books should be included, it doesn't wash. We don't have evidence of that. Yeah, Larry. In that same verse, it also, Peter refers to Paul's writings compared to the rest of Scripture. He actually is considering it part of Scripture. Yeah. Yeah, Peter is equating Paul's writings with the Old Testament, which is very significant as well. Um, there is some criteria that the early church used, and this is there in that second paragraph under three. The early church in, in the fourth century, when they recognized which books should be included in the canon, there were three major criteria. First of all, it had to have prophetic or apostolic origin, or at least indirectly. Mark's gospel, for instance, we're told by early church leaders was Peter's sermons that he then penned. All right, so the, Mark is not an apostle, but he has direct link with an apostle. Second, it has to conform with the rule of faith. There are problems in some of the apocrypha books, for instance. Sirach, I love quoting this one because when I would have college students who'd say, well, shouldn't we include the apocrypha books? Sirach 43 says the evil of a man is better than the, the good of a woman. Well, that's not biblical, is it? Right? Yes, thank you. Uh, I, I, no one's saying anything, right? The evil of a man is better than the good of a woman? No, no, that, that doesn't wash, right? <clears throat> well, some of you are going to need counseling from Eugene over here. <clears throat> Self-proclamation that it's from, it is the word of God. We see that time and time again with the, the Old and New Testament writings. You don't see that with the Apocrypha books, all right? And I give you a, a, a box there, a chart you can look at in the middle of the page later, but reasons for why non-extra-canonical or non-canonical books were rejected, and you can look through that list. So, <clears throat> no, this was not a political game. We see no evidence of that liter literally or literarily or in, in, uh, in historical evidence that would suggest otherwise. So, no, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, there's reasons why those were rejected. They did not fit this criteria. And the church never determined they only recognized what was in the canon. Questions on this one? Now, that's a significant one. I hear it. Let me give you another that's often raised when it comes to the Bible. Can we trust any of our translations? I mean, after all, how many English versions do we have, right? Uh, we could take a little poll in the room. There's the King James, which was good enough for the Apostle Paul. There was the New King James. There's the New American Standard, NIV, the Net, and the list goes on, right? ESV. Blomberg in his book is correct, and I quote him there, except for, a, he talks about the dubious translations such as the Jehovah Witness, all right, the Watchtower translation that, that tries to, to remove the deity of Christ um, to promote their, every Bible on the market today is sufficiently faithful in its translation. So then why do we have all these versions? Why do we, I mean, all these English copies. Why can't we just have one? It's, it isn't a pain on Sunday morning. Used to, you'd everyone read the text. Well, everyone had a King James or a New American Standard. But now, or NIV. Now you, you can't do that. You have to have it on the screen. In other words, we're all on the same page. 
Well, first of all, our language changes, doesn't it? Uh, even when the King James was done, it was because language was changing. That's one of the reasons why it was, was put together. Uh, we don't use thee and thou's anymore in our language much, uh, maybe in certain circles, but for the most part, right? So w- we need a different version uh, to, uh, to accommodate. And, and that's true with the NIV. It's been translated or revised, et cetera, et cetera. There's ongoing discovery of manuscripts. The King James, when it was done, they had about 30 copies of the New Testament. That was it. Now we have over 6,000. And so versions such as the ESV or the Net Bible have tried to account for all of these in in, in looking at the text. And we have a better understanding not only of the ancient world, but of grammar. With 6,000 manuscripts, for instance, in the Greek New Testament, now we can look at grammatical constructions. We can use it lexical choice, etc. Those were things we didn't have when you only had 30-some copies available to you. And we also need to note the purpose for why an uh, English translation is done. The message or the living Bible are what we call paraphrase. It's kind of fluffy. It's more devotional. It, that was what it was intended for. The New American Standard is, is seeking to be very word for word or literal, and at times it's wooden. Uh, it's, he, translation of the Hebrew is not so nice, <laughs> to be quite honest. Uh, the NIV is much better when it comes to the, rendering the Hebrew. The ESV and the Net Bible have said that they want to walk this, this tightrope. They want to maintain word for word, yet make it adaptable to the audience. Uh, John Lieberman was teaching on uh, ministry to Jews, and he said uh, the Net Bible's rendering in John's gospel has the Jewish leaders at fault because in the past that's been translated just the Jews, and there have been Christian groups, such as the Nazis, who say, ah, here it is, the Jews are to blame for the crucifixion of Christ. Well, the Net Bible and others saying, no, what John is referring to is the Jewish leaders. They're the ones held responsible, and so they're trying to bring that out in the translation to create some of the problems. So that, that, that's what's going on here. So I'm not alarmed by the various English versions. I think it's terrific. Which Bible should you be using? I think it depends on what's your purpose. If you're looking to study a text, probably the message would not be the best. If you're wanting a devotional Bible, uh, just to read, the, the message might be perfect. There's times when I visit folks in the hospital, I'll bring them my message Bible because it's, it's kind of, you know, it's nice and, you know, uh, I'm not going to use that to teach out of, but yes. So yeah. a lot of times people use comparing translations as a I think it's a great idea if you can, if you have, a, I know there's software out there, Paul has some. But uh, if you can grab a couple different English versions and, and compare the text, that's nice because you can see how it's been rendered. Um, I, I don't see it a disadvantage personally unless there's something you're thinking of, but uh, I, I see the advantage of that.
Mm-hmm. True. Yeah, there are a whole host. You know, it's exciting days in which we live when it comes to biblical studies based on what we have available to with resources, not just hard copies, but with, with the electronic technology, etc. Um, I told my Greek students when I taught them, I said, Greek is like underwear. You need it for support. Don't let anyone see it. And what I mean by that, it's a real danger to create this caste system as a teacher or as a pastor. Well, in the Greek, it says this, so I can just shut it down. Uh, that's not good uh, because I don't, I don't need Greek to study God's word, all right? Uh, you're going to learn it in heaven, so you might as well, if you can do it now, it's great. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it, it's very helpful. I'm not saying that, but, and, and you should learn it, but I, we have to be careful. And, and so I think it's a blessing that we have a variety of English versions on many fronts. It, it's a pain when it comes to reading scripture in, in the church, but, uh, or if you're in a Bible study. Well, let me give you w- one more here. As we look at, actually two more, as we look at these issues, um, not one more. As we look at these issues of, of various copies, of various variants, of various English versions, don't these issues rule out, and there's a typo error there, which I find very humorous in light of biblical inerrancy, so forgive me. Don't these issues rule out biblical inerrancy? Inerrancy means without error. How can you say we, d- we don't have error in the text? Well, on the top of page 4, Feinberg, who taught at Trinity, states, Inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures, and please note this, in their original autographs are without error. I'm not saying the the Net Bible is without error. There's a couple times that I don't like the translation as well. All right? Uh, These, um, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about the original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm. Note this, whether it has to do with the doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. In all aspects, it's without error. The Lord stated this. Turn to Matthew 5. I want you to see a, a passage of text here. And again, forgive me if you've, you know these texts from heart. Yea, for you, just bear with us. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, as we look at this. It says, do not think that I've come. This is the Lord, so it's red letters. It's very inspired. I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish these things, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth pass away, not the small, and if you have a King James, it's jot or tittle. Uh, this is a great case in point where, what is the jot and the tittle? Uh, today, right? What are you talking about? Well, the Net Bible has not the smallest letter, that's a jot, or stroke of a letter, that's a tittle. And that's very significant in Semitic languages. In Hebrew, for instance, one little tittle can change the whole idea, but it's true in English. For instance, we got the word fun. If I add a tittle, I now have pun. And some people have fun when they do puns. Others have fun when they run. I've added another tittle. And I could add one more and put bun. Some people have fun when they eat buns. I don't know. It changes the whole meaning. And what the Lord's stating, the smallest letter and even a stroke of the letter are important. And they, and they will come to pass. And so the Lord affirms, Christ himself affirms inerrancy. 
And the Chicago Statement, which is signed by evangelical scholars with ETS, if you remember, we had Mike Thigpen, who's the director of the Evangelical Theological Society, speak last October. Every one of that organization, 3,000 members, has to sign this statement. It's being holy and verbally God-given. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God. Then it is witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Very significant, isn't it? Doesn't mean at times we can misinterpret it or mistranslate it. But in the autographs, they are without error. And that's very significant. I give you an argument for inerrancy there on page four that you can look at later. But questions on this one or any of the other questions? This is deep stuff, especially at seven o'clock in the morning. All right? Yes. Uh, wait, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are, are they coming out with a redacted Bible or unredacted Bible? Well, <laughs> Je Jefferson had a redacted Bible too, didn't he? As a deist. Um, yeah, there's the Jesus Seminar, which uh, they have colored marbles and they determine what Jesus really said and what he didn't say. And they estimate that only about 30% of what we have in the New Testament, Jesus really said. So you have this kind of thing going on. Um, Bart Ehrman, by the way, I think, <clears throat> studied at Moody. He, he was a, raised as an evangelical. And over time decided, no, I, I can't believe this. We've got a generation that uh, are being, uh, as many of you are shaking your heads, you know what I'm talking about. They're buying into this rhetoric. And, and unfortunately, we're not, like Ehrman, he's so slick at not giving us the whole puzzle, the whole picture, and, and that's a problem. For some, as we talked about canonicity, inerrancy, inspiration this morning, they're all 50-cent words, and you're saying, so what? I think there's three things I, I want us to run away with today, um, and there's so much to digest here, so much to think about, but number one, we can rejoice. You know, the God of the universe communicates with us that he should see fit. In the beginning was the word, right? That God would come and, and speak to us should cause great rejoicing. Secondly, we can rest in knowing that God has carefully seen fit to preserve his word for us. Um, whether it's archaeological discoveries recently to, to manuscripts that are found, it's just another testimony that, no, God has preserved his word for us. I've seen grown men literally cry at some of the archaeological sites we'll go to, saying, I, I thought these were all fables. This really happened? To stand at Hotzor and to see the burn level from the 1400s from the time of Joshua? To see the Solomonic Gate, only three Solomonic Gates in all of Israel, and you can see all three of them today. The text tells us in Kings that he fortified Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. All three are found, and they're all identical. How do you explain all this? Because the Word of God is true, and God has preserved his text. And finally, we need to read and study God's message. If this really is that significant, if the Lord has gone to such levels, then we need to be men of the Word, which... I'm preaching to the choir. 
I, I hope this is helpful. Um, this is heady stuff. But it is significant. Uh, and the Bart Ehrmans of the world aren't some loose cannon over here. They are mainstream Christendom. Uh, and they have a huge platform. And unfortunately, our young people in particular are buying into postmodern thought and, and chucking the baby out with the bathwater. And that's what the danger we're living in today. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? That was a blitzkrieg through a lot of deep water. <clears throat> my wife goes, oh my goodness, these notes are deep. <laughs> I said, I know, but we've, we've got to tackle these. We, we've got to look at them. I promise the next time we're together, hopefully won't be as deep as we look at the knowability of God and whether he's governed by human actions or God really is all-knowing. Um, and what does that mean for us, right? Just as what does it mean that the Bible is inerrant inspired? It means that we can trust his word. One of the greatest theologians was asked, What's, what can you how can you summarize theology? He said very easily, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, the, the, this, is, this is difficult stuff. I mean, this is things you would study in a seminary. Inspiration, inspiration, canonicity. And just to do a quick 40-minute glossary over these topics is uh, woefully inadequate in so many fronts. But I pray, Lord, at least it, it, it helps see, you know, there, there's answers to these things that folks are raising. And then secondly, Lord, it's just a reminder that how gracious you are to give us your word so that we might know how to serve you better and to learn, first and foremost, how much you love us. We just thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.